Hello. Oh, very good. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you all. I have to start by saying it is a great honor to be here. I am very excited to be here. And I just want to thank those who spoke to me beforehand and during the week for those who knew that I was preaching. Thank you for your words of encouragement and your prayer. That's truly appreciated. Yeah, this is, I have to say, nice, the second service being here. For those who don't know, I do attend this church. I am normally here. I am a member here, but I'm normally at first service. So if you don't recognize me, don't think, oh, they just got some guy we don't know. I'm normally here. I'm in the second service. I'm with the youth. So yeah, don't worry about that. And uh, this is exciting because, and I can already tell, I'm just seeing all the smiles and I'm hearing the laughter. That second service from what I heard from people who are here, both services, you guys are a lot more livelier, a lot more interactive. And that's good news because sometimes when I speak, and since I'm in seminary, I do a bit of speaking there and the kind of content, sometimes I wonder, wow, I wonder if people are getting tired, if they're getting bored. Because sometimes when I speak, I'm like, wow, I'm getting tired, I'm getting bored. So <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for already laughing and your smiles and please keep that going. If I make a joke, please laugh. That, that, in first service, I had to ask for some nods. That was bad, that was tough. But, uh, as a first service person, I'll say it's not because we're tired, it's because we're solemn. So, yeah, take that in. All right, so today I do want to get started, and I, I want us to get started on a, a serious note, not too serious, but I, I want us to be thinking about a question. And that question is, why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? It's, a, it's an interesting question, but a serious question. And I, I don't mean why you're here at Grace in particular, although... That would be an interesting question, and I'd love to hear some answers if we talk later. Maybe there's some funny stories behind that. But right now I'm asking, why are you here this morning, on a Sunday morning, in a church, participating in a Christian worship service? Have you ever thought about that question? Is, is it something you think about? While I fully understand that some of you might be here today just because I'm preaching, I have some family here, but also because of what day it is. Maybe this is the one week you can't say no to mom or grandma, but for the, everyone here, why are we here? And I think if I were to go around, I'd hear all sorts of different answers to that question. How do I know that? Because in my own life, attending this church, I've come for all sorts of different reasons. For a time, I came to church just because it was the law of my house. You're healthy, you're going to church. For a time, I attended church because I was facing problems in my life, and I couldn't think of a better way to secure God's blessing. Go to church, God has to bless me, right? Why not? For a time, I came to church because I had spiritual questions, and I knew that church was the place that was supposed to give spiritual answers. But thankfully, I can say that for a time, I've come to church because I've truly wanted to. I've truly wanted to be here among God's people, worshiping God. And I think that from those four things that I said, that most people here can hopefully identify with one or more of those things, that these are things we experience. These are reasons why we go to church. But I'm also aware those aren't the only reasons. Maybe you attend church because you're in the middle of a crisis and you realize that God might be your only hope. Or maybe you attend church because you feel this lack of direction and you're giving God's direction a try. There are all sorts of reasons why people attend church, why they participate in worship. And I think one way to phrase it is all sorts of reasons why people approach God. 
And this question of approaching God isn't just a modern question. It isn't a new question. People have been thinking about this concept, this question for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. This is an ancient experience, an ancient reality. 3,000 years ago in the land of Israel, during the time of the great King David, a character a lot of us will know, the Israelites faced the same reality. We know from the scriptures that the worship of God was a big part of Israelite life. They had the priests, they had the sacrifices, and eventually they had the temple. From the Old Testament, we could see a central theme of that whole period was how Israel might live in the presence of God, how they might experience God's uh, blessings along with that presence. One could rightly say that worship, approaching God, was the center of Israelite wonder and Israelite life. That said, each individual Israelite, like each individual here and each individual at every single church, they would have all sorts of reasons for why they participated in worship. So many desires shaping why they came to church, why they went to worship. And I know they faced questions like this. I know that they thought about this stuff. We can know this because David wrote about it. David, who was writing a lot of the Psalms, he tackled questions like these. And in today's Psalm, Psalm 15, David poses a question. In response to seeing Israelites from all different walks of life approaching God through worship, David asks, who out of all these people approaching will actually enter into and experience God's presence? Who out of everyone coming, he saw them all, he was the king, who would actually enter into the presence they were approaching? That's a big and maybe scary question. But David provides an answer to that question. And it's my hope for us this morning that by examining this psalm, we would be able to see the answer to that question. And hopefully this answer will be one that will instruct us, but also encourage us as we too, like those back then, like those throughout history, approach God and seek to enter into his presence. And at the end of it, be blessed by that presence through worship. So we're going to be reading Psalm 15. I'll read it. You can listen along. So if you have a Bible, please flip there. Looks like no one's flipping, which means you already have it. Good. So I will read Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Psalms. Through the Psalms, you provide your wisdom, and your wisdom is something we all need. We all have questions, we all have fears, we all have struggles, we all have doubts, uh, doubts, and you face those head on in your word through your Psalms. So I pray today as we look at Psalm 15 that the truth and wisdom of the Psalm would be properly declared. It would be thoroughly understood and it would be rightly applied in all of our lives. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So right at the beginning of the Psalm in the first verse, David is asking a question and he asks the question in two different ways. First, David asks, who can sojourn in God's tent? 
So it's 2019, and I think most of us here don't live in tents. And I also think most of us here don't do a lot of sojourning. So translating that to our day and age, David is asking, who can live in God's home? Think about the idea of home for a minute. Home is something deeply personal and emotional for us. Our hearts hurt when we see people without a home, when we see people without a good home, because we know what the ideal of home is. Home is supposed to be a place of refuge. It's supposed to be a place of comfort, a place of rest, a place of intimacy. And for a time in ancient Israel, God's tent, his home, was literally a tent, the tabernacle. When the people of Israel were traveling, mainly from Egypt to their new homeland, the tabernacle was always in the middle of their camp. Being the house of God's presence, it wasn't just the center of their worship. It was also a constant source of comfort. The tabernacle, this tent, God's tent, was a reminder that God was intimately and immediately present among his people. Using that concept poetically, David is asking, while many approach this intimate place of God, seeking true rest and divine comfort from his presence, who may actually enter in? Who may sojourn in the Lord's tent? Who can live in God's home? After that, David asks, who shall dwell on the Lord's holy hill? Like the Lord's tent, the holy hill, or the mountain of God, was a common symbol for Israel. It was on Mount Moriah where God provided Abraham a ram for an offering instead of his son Isaac. It was on Mount Sinai where God, through Moses, gave the law to Israel, a law which he chiseled with his own finger. And Mount Zion eventually became the greatest symbol for the kingdom of Israel, a kingdom under the protection of God. David, when asking who may dwell or live on God's holy hill, is again asking who may dwell in the presence of God. Yet, now using the image of the holy hill, David is emphasizing that God's presence is a place of authority. It's a place of might. It's a place of strength. So looking at this all, in verse 1, David is asking the critical question. Who may enter God's presence? And this is a question that is just as relevant today for you and I as it was to the people back then. Who gets to enter into God's presence? Of all those approaching, whether it was through their ancient sacrifices or today through Christian worship services and different rituals, who actually gets to enter into God's presence and experience the loving intimacy and unparalleled power of God Most High? That's a big question. It's a profound question. And thankfully, truly thankfully, we're not left to our own devices to come up with or create an answer. David provides it. In verse 2, if you look with me, he says, He who walks blamelessly, or put another way, the person who walks the righteous path. Before we unpack what comes after that, let's just pause for a moment and think about what we have here. Some of you might be thinking right now, whoa, that doesn't sound very loving, or all these people are approaching God's presence and he's not letting them all in, he's not doing that? That doesn't sound very God. Well, let's look at our lives for a moment. Have you ever applied for a job? Have you ever applied to a school? Have you ever tried out for a sports team or for a choir or a play? Typically, lots of people try out. 
yet only some people make the cut. Typically, the ones who make the cut, or the people who are seriously considered for the position, are those who do well in the interview. They're those people who show they can work well with a team, who can follow instructions. But ultimately, the people who are truly considered for the position that they're applying for or trying out for are those people who meet the requirements, those people who can actually do the job. I've experienced this before. So while I've never been the best player, there was a time in my life where I was decent at basketball. So one year, I tried out for my school's basketball team. It seemed like a good fit. I had the same hair back then. And during the tryouts, I thought I did quite well. I was making layups, pretty good, very textbook. I was shooting the ball well enough, and uh, I was keeping my hands up on defense. That's a big thing. Never give up on defense. And I was happy with my performance during the tryout. And later that day, when I confidently strode over to the gym to look on the wall at the paper the coach posted with those who made the cut, my name wasn't there. I didn't make the cut. Very strange. Turns out, to make the basketball team, you have to have pretty decent cardio. Who would have thought? And <laughs> while I could do most of the plays right, I, I did, the, did the layups and everything, after I did the drills two or three times, I was out of steam. And I can imagine the coach, if he's watching this guy, and he's out of steam after doing the drill two or three times, what would I look like in a real game? Well, I, could t I know what I look like in a real game today, and it's not pretty. So he was right. So justly and understandably, I was denied entrance into the basketball team. I approached the basketball team, and I was turned away because I didn't have what it takes. I didn't have what it takes. And while God and relationship with God is, of course, way more nuanced, and that's a deeper discussion, and we have to go different places, I believe in this psalm, and the truth of the matter is, is that the principle remains the same. The psalm presents the same principle. God, who is holy, righteous, and perfect, openly and fairly requires that people who want to enter into his righteous presence walk the righteous path. If you expect entrance into the drum line without knowing how to play the drums, you're going to have a bad time. If you're approaching a righteous God, hoping to enter into his righteous presence and receive his glorious blessings without walking the righteous path, you're going to have a bad time. You're not going to be let in. And before anyone says, that's not fair, or we didn't know, or the requirements for the, this job weren't posted, understand that this requirement to walk the righteous path has been a constant theme of scripture. A thousand years before the time of David, before this psalm was written, God said to Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. 500 years after that, and still 500 years before David, God said to Moses and the people of Israel, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And this isn't something new. It's not something hidden. God, who is righteous, has always called his people to be righteous if they seek to dwell with him, if they want to enter into his intimate and powerful presence. God has always and still calls those approaching him to walk the blameless path, the righteous way, or the road of wisdom. Because if you're not on that road, you're on the other one. If you're not on the righteous path, you're on the path of wickedness. And God, who is righteous, just, and good, 
has nothing to do with those on the wicked path. David, in an earlier psalm, actually reflects on this truth, and he writes this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So that's the wicked path, and that's not the path you want to be on, especially if you're approaching God. But what about the other path? What does that path look like? Well, David tells us. Follow as I read the bulk of Psalm 15. I'll be reading from verses 2 to the first bit of verse 5, and let's think about this. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money out at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So the main answer is that first bit, he who walks blamelessly or righteously. The rest of the section is then unpacking that statement. What does it mean to walk righteously or blamelessly? Well, here's a list of what to do and what not to do. Want to walk the righteous path? Do what is right. Speak truth in your heart. Do not slander. Do not do evil to your neighbor. Frown upon vile people. Honor God-fearing people. Be truthful to your word. Keep your promises. Do not swindle people. And do not abuse those less fortunate than you. Right there, David just gave a helpful list of 10 things to do and not to do if you want to walk the righteous path. But there's something critical we have to recognize here. David's list, while all good and true, of course, I wouldn't say it's not, uh, is not exhaustive. These do's and don'ts don't cover all the do's and don'ts which define walking the righteous path. But how, how can I say this? How can we know this? Well, first of all, David left out the Ten Commandments. Knowing that David was the king of Israel, the Ten Commandments were kind of a big deal. He wouldn't just leave them out and forget about them. This was an attempt to replace them. We know that in this situation that David is honoring the Ten Commandments, but in this context, he is assuming them. David fairly assumes that it's obvious that keeping the Ten Commandments, things like loving God and not worshiping false gods, are obviously part of walking the righteous path. On top of that, David is keeping intentionally his list of do's and don'ts limited. He's keeping the list short. This tells us something. This list is meant to be representative. It's meant to point to something greater. Ultimately, the righteous path isn't just about this list of do's and don'ts, no matter how large. The righteous path is ultimately about moral virtue. It's about approaching every situation, every moment, every instance, every decision, and doing what is good and right in the sight of God. It's about recognizing that all of our lives, every word, every action, every deed, ought to be done with God's presence in mind. David saw people approaching God. 
he saw them showing up to the priests with their sacrifices in hand, and now he's explaining that showing up and just participating in any ceremony, any ritual, be that their ancient sacrifice or whatever we have today, baptism, the Lord's Supper, while those are good, showing up isn't enough. Showing up means nothing if your head and heart isn't in the game. Going to church every Sunday, any Sunday, doesn't mean you're entering into God's presence. The truth back then is the same truth today. The righteous path isn't just a Sunday morning thing. It's an all-of-life reality. And while in this context we might be going, well, that's strange, I don't know what he's talking about, this isn't a foreign concept at all. Think about your lives for a moment. Spouses in the room right here, think about your spouse for a moment. Does a weekly date night communicate love and respect if you're visibly bored the entire time? Does it honor your partner if your words and body language clearly say that you'd rather be somewhere else than with the person? Does being on that date mean anything if you're glued to your phone the entire time? Probably, probably hurts your cause. Children in the room, think about your mothers for a moment. Do you love your mother? Do you appreciate your mother? How do you show that? Does treating her like a queen for two days of the year, Mother's Day and her birthday, really cut it? Does honoring her just those two days say that you love her? Even if that's where you are, I hope you understand by the way I'm saying it, but that's not the right attitude. That's a problem. And I'm asking us, why should we view God, our creator, any way less than that? While you could approach God with a mind of sorrow, with a mind of doubt, or with a mind of fear, or a mind of struggle, or even with a mind of joy and gladness, at the end of it all, you have to approach God knowing that he demands all of your mind. He demands all of your heart. And justly, he demands all of your life. And like those other relationships, I could have listed a bunch of others. I just said spouses and children, but think of your siblings, your friends, your, anyone in your life. That's something, commitment, that's something that takes time. That's something that takes energy. And in a lot of situations, that's something that could take quite a bit of pain. But that's something that's worth it. And why is it worth it? Because those who walk the righteous path will be secure. Look at the bottom of, it should be the bottom of your text, the last line in the psalm, right at the end of verse 5. David writes, He who does these things shall never be moved. The person who walks the righteous path follows that list of do's and don'ts, lives by a sense of moral virtue, they shall never be moved. God promises to protect those who walk the righteous path. And that's a promise one can trust in. But before we go run off with that promise, I, I got to explain what it means, right? Because David, the author of the psalm, the guy who wrote this psalm, he'd be the first one to tell you that walking the righteous path doesn't mean hardship ends. David would go on to face hardship, hardship after hardship. His son Solomon, the next king, he wrote about David's reign as king, and he said that reign was marked by endless warfare, by enemies coming in on all sides. And I think we'd all agree that doesn't sound very secure. That sounds like the opposite of secure. That sounds bad, really bad. But the important thing here is to recognize that David is speaking of spiritual security. And that's a greater promise. 
Despite all the physical hardships we face, God assures us. He's, he's assuring us that those who walk the righteous path, that their soul will be safe. Despite everything going on around them, despite everything happening to them, their soul will be eternally secure in the hands of God. David fought never-ending wars, and wars back then really weren't pretty. And he could still say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And why is that? Because David was in the presence of God. And God's presence is like his tent, intimate and rest-providing. And God's presence is like his holy hill, mighty and immovable. And that could be true for us today. So as a final point, I want to recognize something. For those who have been listening and know some doctrine and theology, you might realize that this psalm has presented a bit of a dilemma. While we have been talking about walking the righteous path, we still need to talk about righteousness. God being holy, just, and perfect ultimately and justly requires perfect righteousness from people. And that's bad news. Because none of us here, I guarantee it, have walked the righteous path perfectly. Abraham, Father Abraham, he failed. Long ago, we can read it in the Bible, I encourage you to look it up. He once lied about who his wife was to avoid tension with the king. Moses, Moses, the prophet Moses, guy who brought the law, he failed. In a fit of rage, he threw down that law he was given. And then David, the guy who wrote the psalm, the guy who's giving us this wisdom, he failed, and he failed spectacularly. There's a story of him stealing another man's wife away, and then to avoid getting in trouble, having that man killed. And I don't need to say it again, but yes, we have all failed too. We can all think that at one point or another, to one degree or another, we have all failed because we have all disobeyed God's just law. We have all sinned, and we all have fallen short of God's standard of perfect righteousness. That's a dilemma. You might be asking right now, what good is walking the righteous path if we have all fallen short of God's standard of perfect righteousness? Is it even possible to walk the, uh, the righteous path? Why should I even do it? It's hopeless at this point. But thankfully, God provides the solution. There was one who walked the righteous path perfectly. There was one who lived in absolute and perfect accordance with the wisdom of this psalm. There was one who was obedient through it all. And that person was? Jesus, Jesus thanks. It's also on your notes. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And critically for us now in this conversation is that by that one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. God not only shows us the righteous path we are called to walk, he provides the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And bringing this all together, this answers our initial question. Remember when I said that David's list of do's and don'ts assumes some basic principles like following the Ten Commandments? Do you remember that? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, well, today here, now, we know that faith in Jesus Christ 
is one of those assumed things. With the greater information we receive from the New Testament, from the life of Christ, we know that faith in Jesus Christ is one of the foundations of the path of righteousness we are called to walk. In fact, God's gracious gift of faith in Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus which we receive because of that faith is the reason why we're even able to walk the righteous path. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, God saves us from the path of wickedness so that we might walk the righteous path. And why does he do that? Because he loves us. He wants what's best for us. Walking the righteous path honors God, something we have to do, something we should be doing. Walking the righteous path benefits our neighbors. It benefits those around us. And at the end of it, the righteous path is truly the best way for us to live. And walking that righteous path isn't something we can do by our own strength. It's something that we have to do by Christ. And that, my friends, everyone here, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That what once looked like a harsh requirement to enter God's presence and receive his blessing is actually shown to be a gracious call to live the best, what, the best way for yourself. So now I recognize that we've come a long way, that time is almost up, and I said a lot of stuff. So let me close with a summary. The question. Many people are approaching God, but who will actually enter into his presence? The answer? Those who walk the righteous path. And the promise? Those who walk the righteous path can rest knowing that they will be secure in the presence of God Almighty. So today, from God's word, this isn't me, I'm saying it, but from God's word, I'm calling all of us here, all, everyone here who is approaching God and wants to enter into his presence. Walk the righteous path. Walk the righteous path knowing that it begins by turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Walk the righteous path knowing that it is an all-of-life commitment, not just a Sunday morning thing. Walk the righteous path knowing that if you face hardship, that's still a part of your life, that we can and do fail. Walk the righteous path knowing that when we do fail, and it happens, that Christ's righteousness covers you, that Christ is there to love you, to restore you, to have mercy upon you, to forgive you. Walk the righteous path knowing that it's the best way to live, both for you, but also for those around you, for your community, for everyone you're in contact with. And finally, walk the righteous path knowing that you will be in God's intimate and powerful presence, a presence that will bless you like none other. For God's presence is a blessing for those who walk the righteous path. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this gathering here today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for providing a place in this community where we can approach you as people together. And right now, as I'm preaching here today, the, the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones are ringing in my head that what is preaching? Preaching is logic on fire. And for those of us here, we understand that preaching is only logic on fire when you are speaking, when your word is declared, when your spirit is working and moving. So I pray right now that everything I have said today that is good and true, I pray that that would be planted deep in our hearts, that all of us can be walking away from this place, encountering your face through your word. And I pray if I said anything falsely, that that word would be blotted out from people's minds, that they would forget about it. 
so that at the end of the day, your truth will stand. It will be declared, and it will go forth, and it will conquer as you have promised. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.